Mark 16, it's not over. It's not over. Mark chapter 16. Find your place in your copy of God's Word. And folks, as, as you do so, I just want to welcome everybody here for this uh, special Easter morning. Uh, you know, in the early church, uh, they would say, He is risen. And the congregation... He is risen indeed. I was going to say the congregation would respond by saying that. But you don't need that coaching, do you? So let me say it again. He is risen. He is risen indeed. indeed. Amen. You know, very clearly in the Bible, as I spoke at the uh, sunrise service this morning, God's people were to remember special occurrences and events in their lives. Things that God had done in their behalf. Uh, For instance, I think of the Passover and how perpetually after that they were to remember God's deliverance of them out of Egypt. So every year the Jews celebrate the Passover in remembrance of when they killed a lamb and they put the blood on the doorpost and the lentils and the death angel passed over them. Then I think about the giving of the law and how in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God told the people that they were to keep the law before their eyes. They were to write them on their doorposts. They were to carry the law with them and never forget the law. I think of the children of Israel crossing uh, the Jordan River and how they picked up the stones out of the river and they set up a monument. And they did so, so that in later generations, when the young people would say, what does this mean? The parents would again be able to tell them the great things that God had done in their behalf. And so again, over and over again, they were to keep in their minds and before their eyes the great things that God had done in their behalf. Folks, there's nothing greater than the resurrection, And so year after year, we remember the resurrection on Easter Sunday. But I remind you that every day in the life of a Christian, and every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. He lives. We need to remember that. Dr. John MacArthur said, As the heart carries life-giving blood and oxygen... To every other part of the body, so the truth of the resurrection gives life to every other Christian doctrine. Let's not forget that. Would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? We'll be reading in verse uh, 1 down through verse 8. It's not over. Verse 1 says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And they said to him, or or rather he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. 
He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes and open our ears to the truth of your word. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher and our counselor. Help us to understand wonderful things from your word about the resurrection and how it changes everything about our lives. Lord, may we live every day of our lives in light of the fact that he lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I'm glad to see Gavin McKinnis in the service with us this morning. I thought he may be in the earlier service. But I want to begin by telling a story today I told some years ago. And I think given the occasion, it bears repeating. And I'm especially glad that he's here to, to listen to it. It was a crisp fall day in 1994 and football was in the air. The University of Colorado was playing the University of Michigan. Both teams were undefeated and obviously both hoped to stay that way. They hoped that they would be the team leaving that day still undefeated. The game was being played in Michigan and unbelievably there were 105,000 college football fans. Now during the last two minutes of the game, Michigan scored a touchdown to go ahead of Colorado by four points. Colorado got the ball back with just one minute left on the clock, but they had 80 yards to go. A field goal would do them no good. It had to be a touchdown. Two passes were incomplete. Now they just had six seconds left on the clock. It was time for a Hail Mary pass. Something that almost never works. The Colorado quarterback, Cordell Stewart, who went on to play in the NFL for the Pittsburgh Steelers, he dropped back in the pocket and he let one sail for 64 yards. Both teams had their players down at the end zone. The pass fell about a yard or two short. The Michigan fans were already celebrating. They were going to go home that day and their team was still undefeated. But a Michigan football player tipped the ball just right. And he tipped it backwards into the end zone. And right into the arms of a Colorado player as he was falling to the ground. And he caught the pass. He hit the turf. And he held on to the ball Colorado won the game. The Michigan fans and Gavin 
were stunned. They thought it, ha- they thought it was over. But it wasn't. Now, folks, as we get into Mark chapter 16, the spirit of the text here is that things are over. Jesus is dead. So they thought. This whole Jesus movement was done. It would soon end because their leader was dead. Oh, his memory may last for a few months, maybe even for three or four years. And many in Israel would no doubt be talking about this prophet from Galilee who lost his life, but memory of Jesus would soon fade. Jesus' body had been hurriedly laid to rest in a tomb before the Sabbath began at 6 p.m. on Friday. There had not even been time to properly anoint his body with spices. Since they didn't embalm bodies the way the ancient Egyptians did and the way modern Europeans and Americans do, it was necessary to put spices between the folds of the burial garments to keep the odor down. These ladies are going to the tomb after the Sabbath to perform this labor of love. And make no mistake about it, this would have been a labor of love on their part. But their tone is a tone of defeat. Their tone is a tone of despair and of fear and confusion because you see their hopes have been dashed to the ground. Now they would assume that everything would just go back to the way it had always been. Or so they thought. Folks, the resurrection reveals that death is not the end. It was not the end for the Lord Jesus and it will not be the end for you and me either. Because he is raised, you too shall be raised. The resurrection of Jesus Christ promises you and me that it is not over. Life is not over when we breathe our last breath on the face of this earth. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you and I can experience redemption and eternal life. The first thing I want you to see with me this morning is an anxious heart. These ladies had an anxious heart. Look again at verse 1 with me. It says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance? of the tomb they were anxious they were worried they were concerned about a lot of different things they were anxious first of all to finish a task that normally would have already been completed you see Jesus body had been taken off the cross after 3 p.m. on Friday the Sabbath began at 6 p.m. Now the gospel of John tells us that after Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus' body off the cross, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes that weighed 100 pounds. 
And Nicodemus and Joseph wrapped the body of Jesus in linens and put the spices in between the folds before they put the body in the tomb. The tomb again that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. Now the women who were followers of Jesus had witnessed all of these events. And they had witnessed that the job of preparing the body for death was left incomplete. Luke tells us that the women went back in the little bit of time they had before 6 p.m. And they prepared more spices. And then Luke says they all rested on the Sabbath as they were commanded by God to do. Now with such an extensive job to do, it's only fitting that they would have waited till Sunday morning. Because had they started at 6 p.m. on Saturday, darkness would have soon overtaken them. And so early on Sunday morning, about sunrise, these women get together and they journey to the tomb once again. They're anxious to finish what normally would have already been completed had they previously had sufficient time to do so. Again, folks, this was a labor of love. Their love and devotion to the person of Christ continued even after they believed that he was dead. But what a somber time this must have been for them. If you've ever had the experience, and I know many of you in here have, if you've ever had the experience of going to a funeral home after one of your loved ones has died, you know one of the jobs that you have to do is you have to take a suit of clothes or a dress to the funeral home that you want your loved one to be buried in. And you know what a somber journey that is as you're driving to the funeral home. That's the kind of mood that I'm sure these ladies would have been in. They were so anxious about getting all of this finished. And the Bible tells us here that also they were very anxious about the large rock that had been moved in the doorway of the tomb. How in the world are they going to be able on their own to move that rock out of the entrance? And Matthew tells us in addition to this large stone that the enemies of Jesus had gone to Pilate and they had asked Pilate for a Roman guard to be stationed there at the tomb. But unknown to them, folks, isn't it wonderful how a living, risen Lord had already taken care of everything that they were worried about? Isn't that great? Think about people today. People today anxious about so many things. Some of you may be filled with anxieties over various things this morning. People have an anxious heart about their sin and their guilt before God. They have an anxious heart about death. They have an anxious heart about their daily lives and about all the trials and tribulations that they go through in everyday life. We worry about so much. And I want to say to you on this Easter Sunday morning that Jesus, because he lives, he is more than able to take care of anything that causes your heart or my heart anxiety. 
We saw last week how he can handle all of our sin. 1 Peter 3.18 says, The just died for the unjust that he might reconcile us to God. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that we can rest assured, we can be confident that we don't have to worry about the everyday things in our lives. Jesus pointed to the lilies of the field and how God takes care of them and the sparrows, the birds of the air and how God feeds them. And Jesus said, aren't you worth more than the lilies? Aren't you worth more than the sparrows? You can rest assured that God's going to take care of you. And so everything about our lives, where their daily provision, where their strength going through trials, where their wisdom, the forgiveness of sins, the fear of death and the grave, all of that, a living Lord is able, more than able, to take care of it. We worry, we worry about so much in life that we don't need to worry about. As the song says, because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Folks, all we have to do is trust him. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 7 that we can cast all of our anxieties on him because he cares for you. Again, what I want you to understand, if he were not alive, if he were not risen from the dead, he couldn't take care of our anxieties. He couldn't do anything because he would be dead and in a tomb. But because he lives, he holds our lives in the palm of his hands. Next, they make an astonishing discovery. An astonishing discovery there beginning in verse 4 says, And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. The first astonishing discovery they make here is of an open tomb. Unknown to them, something miraculous has transpired during the early morning hours. Now, we're not told all the details of how the resurrection happened. We're just simply told that it did, in fact, happen. They got there and they saw an open tomb. Not only an open tomb, but they made another amazing discovery that it was also an empty tomb. The recent occupant was gone. Jesus was not there. Now you know unbelievers and skeptics and agnostics and atheists all down through the ages have proposed some pretty foolish arguments to try to explain away what they think happened. Maybe you've read some of their theories. First of all, there's the swoon theory. Skeptics used to say that Jesus was falsely believed to be dead and in the coolness of the tomb, he simply revived. He came forth and he convinced everybody that he had risen from the dead. 
But you know, this ignores the fact that none of the ancient authorities, not even the enemies of Christ, ever believed anything other than the fact that he was dead. There's the wound of the centurion. It produced blood and water, evidence of death, because the blood is already uh, has already begun to break down into its different elements. Then there's the testimony of the centurion himself, a man trained in administering death who proclaimed that Christ was dead. Then there are the grave clothes. The Jews tightly wrapped corpses in grave clothes and between the folds they would place up to hundreds of pounds of spices between the folds. And the head was also tightly wrapped. The appearance would be mummy-like. Now suppose Jesus who had been crucified could have gotten out of the grave clothes. He would have then had to have gone over to the large stone with hands that had been pierced with large nails or spikes. He would have had to have placed his hands on the flat inside of a huge rock that would take many people to roll into place. And without any grips on the inside, flat side of the stone, he would have had to have rolled that stone up out of its channel and out of the way. He then would have had to have faced a Roman guard. He would have had to have overcome all of them by sheer force. All of this for a man who had just been crucified. And then he would have walked 14 miles to Emmaus and back that afternoon on feet that had been nailed to a cross. David Strauss himself, an unbeliever, called The swoon theory, absolutely absurd. He wrote, it is impossible that one who had just come from the grave, half dead, who stood in need of emergency medical treatment and tender care, could have ever given to the disciples the impression that he was a conqueror over death and the grave. Then there's the ridiculous theory that the enemies of Christ had stolen the body of Jesus. Now if that would have been the case when the disciples of Jesus began preaching the resurrection all the enemies would have had to have done was simply produced a body. Furthermore, this theory couldn't explain the actual eyewitnesses either. Now, akin to this theory is the theory that the disciples themselves stole the body. But the disciples almost to a man with the exception of John ended up dying horrible deaths because of their preaching of the resurrection. Somebody might live for a lie but no one dies for what they know to be a lie. Also there's been the theory that the resurrection was only a a hallucination. By men and women who wanted it so badly to be true that they imagined it to the point of hallucinating about it. Now if that were so, how do you account for the women who went to the tomb fully expecting to anoint a dead body with spices? They were grieving his death. 
They weren't thinking at this point that he was alive. Mary was grieving, thinking somebody had stolen the body of Jesus. She was not expecting what she saw next. And how do we account for the unbelief of the disciples in the upper room? They too were not expecting a risen Lord. They had not talked themselves into believing something or seeing visions of something. Also in the history of hallucinations, never do 500 different people all see the very same thing at the same time as Paul pointed out about the eyewitnesses in 1 Corinthians 15. Furthermore, if they were only proclaiming their hallucinations, their enemies again could have just simply gone to the tomb and produced a dead body. On and on and on we could go with the ridiculous arguments of the skeptics. Now folks, let's think about some things a moment that show the validity of what happened that first Easter morning. First of all, there's the fact of the Lord's Day. The Hebrews held tenaciously for thousands of years to the Sabbath because that's what God had commanded them to do. Then suddenly after the resurrection, you have a group of Jews changing their day of worship from the Sabbath to the first day of the week that they began calling the Lord's day how do you account for something like that something had to have happened to motivate them to do that then there is Easter again Easter has replaced the Jewish holiday of Passover the celebration of Easter as Christ's resurrection can be traced all the way back to the days of the early church for that first group of Jewish Christians it replaced Passover, which had been one of their most sacred religious holidays. Again, there had to be a reason for that. Then there's Christian art. In the catacombs beneath the city of Rome, from the hands of some of the first persecuted Christians, we find carved into the walls there depictions of Christ's resurrection. Then there's Christian hymnody. Hymns were sung in the early church Testifying to the resurrection of Jesus. Then there's the church itself. Dr. William Barclay says, By far the greatest evidence for the resurrection is the existence of the church. How did the largest institution known to man come into being? What accounts for the church? Something happened. Then there are the the apostles themselves. The apostles themselves who were so timid before and yet so bold in the book of Acts. Simon Peter, for example, he was once so timid in the presence of a little maiden girl at the arrest of Jesus. But in the book of Acts, Peter is out in the streets openly challenging the authorities. These men died for their belief in a Savior risen from the dead. Again, men will not die for what they know to be a lie. And then there's the transformation of the Apostle Paul. Think of that. Paul had once been a rising star in the 
circles of Jewish rabbis. He was trained by the best. Paul gives his resume in Philippians chapter 3 how he had exceeded all others. And, And Paul, when he was still Rabbi Saul, he hated any kind of discussion or talk about Jesus or about the resurrection. It was Paul's mission in life that he was going to stamp out Christianity. And so there he was on the road to Damascus going to arrest Christians and drag them back bound to Jerusalem. And on the way to Damascus, the risen Lord appeared to him and saved him and changed his life. So the greatest enemy of Christianity became the greatest proponent of the gospel. And he ended up dying himself for the message about a risen Savior. Folks, there is no reason in the world whatsoever to doubt the testimony of the angel here to these ladies that he's risen from the dead. Next, we see an amazing message. An amazing message, verses 6 and 7. He said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. What's the message to them? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He's not here. He's risen. In another gospel account, he tells them, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Folks, it's no wonder that all four gospels record the resurrection. The resurrection is not a tag-on event. It's not an epilogue. It's not a footnote. It is the essence of Christianity. It is the foundation of Christianity. It is the main event. Now, yes, the teachings of Jesus are wonderful. The miracles of Jesus, likewise, are wonderful. But without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the teaching and the miracles of Jesus would simply have faded into the background and ended up being nothing more than a chapter in the life of the world's great men. But Jesus is not simply a great man. He is the living Lord. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. The greatest life ever lived is the Lord Jesus. And the greatest event in his life is the resurrection. And so that makes the resurrection the greatest event in the history of all existence. Folks, that is not an exaggerated statement. You cannot overestimate or overstate the importance of the resurrection. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then this would mean of necessity that not even Christ has been raised from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then you are still in your sins. And not only are you still in your sins, but if you're preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're a false witness because you're testifying that God's raised his son from the dead if he's not raised him from the dead. And Paul said we would be of men most pitied 
if all we had to hope in was things in this life. The resurrection is that important. Jesus is not simply a memory. He is alive. He is with us every day. And even now he is at the right hand of the Father and he's making intercession for us. And the Bible says he is preparing a place for us. And as he told his disciples in John chapter 14, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am there, you may be also. Folks, the Easter message of the resurrection should still be just as amazing to us today in 2018 as it was to these ladies who first witnessed it. Now notice along with this amazing message, there is fourthly and lastly an astonishing announcement. Look at the announcement, verse 7. The angel says, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. They were to go tell the disciples and Peter the resurrection was not to be a secret. It was not to be kept a secret. They were to tell the disciples who in turn would tell others. And today we continue that process of telling others. Folks, because he lives, we continue to go into all the world today making disciples, baptizing people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We have a group in Africa today and this week doing that very thing. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, going out and making an astonishing announcement to the world that Jesus lives and in him there can be life and the forgiveness of sins. And I love the way here that that the ladies are told, don't just go and tell the disciples, but on top of that, he says, and Peter, go and tell Peter. Peter is singled out. Now folks, I don't know about you, but that is absolutely wonderful. Because you remember what Peter has just done? Peter's denied the Lord. Not once, not twice, three times. And the Bible says Peter went out and wept. And probably what is on Peter's mind, Peter's wondering, is God done with me? There's no hope for me anymore. I I am done for. Jesus is never going to consider me within his group of disciples. And yet the message is, Peter... God is not done with you yet. Isn't that great? Maybe you think you've committed a sin or too many sins. There's no way God could use you.
Folks, let this announcement here to, to Peter be an encouragement to you that God is not done with you. Amen? In fact, Peter was going to go on to have not just a little minor role, but a major role. In Matthew 16, Jesus said, I'm giving to you the keys of the kingdom. We know on the day of Pentecost, Peter opened the kingdom, so to speak, to the Jews. He preached Jesus to the Jews and 3,000 came to faith. And then in Acts chapter 10, what scholars refer to as the Gentile Pentecost, when again Peter went and preached to Cornelius and his household and he talked to them about the good news of risen Savior and Gentiles came to faith in Jesus. And so again, Peter was the main one at the beginning of the church, announcing the good news to both Jews and Gentiles. Peter, despite his sin, he wasn't going to have just a little role. God still had a big role for him. Peter needed to know he was forgiven. God wasn't done with him yet. Now, folks, in closing, just quickly, I want to wrap up by reminding you what Easter does for us. Number one, it testifies to the truthfulness of the Word of God. That was Peter's point on the day of Pentecost in his sermon. That everything they had witnessed was simply the fulfillment of prophecy... Go back and read Peter's sermon and all the Old Testament scriptures that he quoted of God talking about his son that would be raised from the dead. God had promised the resurrection. And so the resurrection testifies to the truthfulness of God's word. Secondly, it declares the deity of the son of God. It's God's testimony to his son's deity. In the New Testament, there were lots of individuals who had testified to Christ's deity. John the Baptist had. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The disciples in Matthew 16 had testified to his deity. When Christ said, Who do men say that I am? Even the demons had testified of the deity of the Son of God. Anytime demons encountered Jesus in the gospel accounts, they would say, Jesus, we know who you are. You are most high son of God. What do you have to do with us? Even the demons recognize the deity of Christ. Well Paul in Romans 1 says Jesus was declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. So it's God's testimony to his son's deity. Thirdly, it completes our salvation. Romans 4.25 says, He was delivered over because of our transgressions and raised because of our justification. And so the resurrection completes the cycle that the cross points to. At the cross, Jesus died for our sin, but because he was sinless, when he died for our sin, the Bible says God looked at this sacrifice and he was pleased with it. God raised his son from the dead. Jesus being without sin could not stay dead. And so the resurrection shows that the cross satisfied God's justice. 
fourthly, it warns us that we have a judge. In Acts 17, Paul is preaching there at Athens and he says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. You see, you can't hold court if the judge is dead. But the judge is not dead. He's alive. And that means one day each of us have to stand before the Bema seat of Christ and give an account. And then lastly, the resurrection communicates to the church what its mission is to be. We're to go into all the world and preach the good news of a risen Savior. Folks, they thought it was over. That first Easter morning as they made their way to the tomb, they thought it was over. It was far from over. Because he lives. Would you bow with me in prayer please? I wonder today is there anyone who needs to say right now. God I believe. Forgive me. Forgive me of my sin. Live your life in me and through me. Lord help me to be a witness of your life. And of your saving power. Be my Lord from this moment forward. You are Lord. But be my Lord. Be the Lord of my life. What an awesome day to give your life to Christ. Simply pray and ask him to come into your life. Forgive you. And if you do that, I want to challenge you to make it public. Confess Christ before men. He tells us to do that. I want you to remember today that He lives. He sees everything about your life. He knows all about you. He knows your needs. He knows your hurts. He knows your sin. He knows everything about you. And still, He loves you. And He can work in your life in amazing ways. Remember also that you and I have a mission. A mission to a lost world. Many people will go to bed tonight and they have no idea that there's a Savior who died for their sin. And was raised again to give them eternal life. You and I go to bed tonight having that peace. But millions do not know that peace. Could it even be somebody around you that you need to tell? Lord, we thank you that the resurrection changes everything. It changed everything about these ladies, everything about the early disciples, everything about the Apostle Paul, everything about us. 
Lord, help us to be bold and not keep the news of the resurrection a secret. And Lord, help people all over this building this morning to understand that because you live and all power and all wisdom belongs to you, there is nothing in their life that they face whereby they're all alone in life and they have to rely on their own strength and wisdom. Lord, let somebody here today know of your great love for them and how you can take care of their lives and what they face. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.